0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. I grew up just over an hour from Disney World. Seeing Super Bowl champions shout, I'm going to Disney World, didn't have much impact. I'd been there and done that many times. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series God With Us with this sermon entitled The Gift of the Incarnation which covers Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, and chapter nine, verses two, six, and seven. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: I'll start us off tonight by, uh, in where we're going in terms of the message, by sharing something that is true of me. I've seen it be true, a pattern, a rhythm in my life, that I think is true of all of us. I think it's common to human nature. And the way that I'll describe it is I'll say that it is the, um, the common effect, if you will, of a waning, listen to this, a waning appeal of a wonder already observed. A lessening appeal of something that's wondrous, but you've already seen it. And so a couple of things come to mind when I, when I say that. First is um, I grew up in a church, small church in North Alabama. One of my favorite things about being a part of that church and a part of that youth group growing up, once I uh, got into middle school, was every summer we would take a week in July and we would get onto, onto two charter buses and the whole youth group would go up, drive, I don't remember how many hours, but it felt like forever, to Rochester, New York from North Alabama. I can only imagine how much the chaperones just loved that trip, full of middle school and high school kids hyped up on caffeine, candy, and everything else. But we'd go to Rochester every, every summer for a week, and we would uh, serve for a week there at a, a large housing complex uh, where we would minister to the kids through vac- Vacation Bible School. We'd hand out food. We'd, uh, we'd try to engage in spiritual conversations and so on and so forth. But at the end of the trip, each year, we'd take about an hour drive north up just over the Canadian border to see Niagara Falls. How many have seen Niagara Falls in person? A lot of you, wow, okay. So... You know what I'm talking about. And you know how awe-inspiring, if you've been, it is to stand right there on the edge of the falls because you can walk right up to the edge right there. And you can see and just take in, and I'm speaking, just so you know, for those of you who have been, I'm thinking about the Canadian side. The American side, is, it's okay. The Canadian side's awesome, okay? It's unbelievable. The amount of water that flows over per second is just overwhelming. And long before you ever even see the falls, you hear the falls. I can remember getting out of the bus for the first time and I don't remember how far away we were. I remember we had to take a little bit of a walk to get to where we could see them, but I could hear them the whole time. The power that is, that is happening in those waters, falling, those depths is shocking. We even went down in, in uh, that first year, we got on the Maiden of the Mist which is the boats, the the, the various boats that you can load up in and you you put your, your rain gear on because you're gonna get soaking wet because they'll take you straight up to the very edge of where the falls, you're at the bottom where the falls are coming down as close as you can humanly get. And it is absolutely stunning. Even as an eighth grader, the first time I went was in eighth grade. I don't care about things like that as an eighth grader, right? Eighth graders aren't thinking about those kind of things, but I was blown away. Now, by the time I went for the fifth time as a senior in high school, true story, I didn't even go to the falls. We got out of the bus, and as a tourist destination, you might assume that there's all kinds of shops and restaurants and entertainment outlets and whatnot, and and so I had seen it. I had seen it four times. I had stood there. I was not interested anymore. The waning appeal of a wonder already observed. I didn't even go to the falls that last year. Another example that comes to mind is when I was leading Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew, at the University of Alabama for many years. We would take a group of college students every spring break. I think it was six years in a row that we went up and took them to to New York City. Similar type thing. We had service projects. We uh, went to many college campuses throughout the city, engaged in spiritual conversations. But we always reserved a couple of days on the end of the trip for uh, the students and all that were with us to go and enjoy the city and explore New York City. The one thing that we would do together as a whole group is we would go to the top of the Empire State Building. And so again, very first time I went up to the top of the Empire State Building, I was blown away. I couldn't believe the, the view that I was taking in. No matter which way I looked, it was stunning. And I didn't wanna go down. I remember when it was time to go down, I'm the leader. And one of my staff came to me and said, hey, we should probably head down now. And I'm thinking, do we really have to? This is incredible. By the last time that we took the group up there, I went up with a group. I didn't even go out into the outside air part of the observatory. I stayed inside the enclosed area and I watched mainly them enjoy it because you know, the waning appeal of a wonder already observed. And I sat inside and I can remember, I was the one going, okay, when do we get to go down? Now you may be ahead of me in the connection that I'm gonna make, which is to say this. For many of us, that's Christmas. Now it's not Christmas from the standpoint of the gifts never get old. We always, as people who mostly naturally think about ourselves first, we love gifts. That never gets old. But the real meaning of Christmas, the significance of why we're even gathered here can feel a lot like the waning appeal of a wonder already observed. It can feel like I've been there, I've done that. Some of you have been at Perimeter for Christmas Eve services for I don't know how many years in a row, and I think that's awesome. Some of you are sitting in the same seat you sit in every year, and that's okay, no judgment. Some of you you go somewhere every Christmas Eve. It just happens to be perimeter this year. But for many of us, and listen, I just want you to know, I'm talking about myself, myself included, it can begin to feel like the repetitious duty of being a Christian in America. This is just what we do. We gather for Christmas Eve, and when do we get to leave? So here's my prayer. My prayer coming into this day was simply this that if you find yourself in a space or in a place where you would say, if you were fully honest with yourself, I've never found anything about Christmas to be wondrous as it pertains to Jesus. I've never fully really thought that it was all that grand or magnificent that this whole God came to earth thing and, and took on flesh and Jesus and the manger and it was okay, whatever, that today, In the few moments that we have together and from here on out, something would switch and the eyes of your heart would be open to see for the very first time the beauty of the overwhelming waters of the love of God in Christ. That you'd be able to stand, as it were, at the top of, of a view of the gospel that you've never had, not unlike the Empire State Building, and you begin to take in a view that you've never taken in, t- uh, taken in before of the, of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. For others of us, perhaps you would say, yeah, gosh, I, I remember. I'm not there right now, but I remember when that awe and that wonder was there. And so may our prayer for you be, Oh God, would you bring it back? And I'm not necessarily talking about a feeling. Feelings come and go. We're talking about a reality that would so overwhelm us that we would say, regardless of whether I feel it or not, that truth changes everything. The truth of Emmanuel, God with us. That the truth of Jesus, that we would stare at him so much not only now in these few minutes, but tonight, tomorrow, and in the days and years to come, we stare at him so much that our hearts would begin to sing with joy and adoration for this king. I wanna read to you a few verses that are out of the book of Isaiah. These are gonna be familiar to you. Even if you didn't uh, grow up or haven't been in or around church, you're gonna probably recognize these. They're quoted almost every Christmas somewhere, even in movies. These are verses that are gonna be familiar, but don't let the familiarity of these verses bring about a a sense of just, okay, I know that. Enter into them again. Listen to what God is saying. Isaiah is a prophet of the Old Testament. In the Bible, there's two big sections of the Bible. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the, the marker of what changes between the two is the birth of Christ. When Christ is born, that's when we enter into the New Testament. So everything leading up to the birth of Christ is what we would say is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you have these guys called prophets. Now, if you've ever tried to read the Bible and you didn't make it through, there's a chance you might've started with the prophets because they're depressing and they're hard to read and they don't make sense all the time. And you need someone who's gone to seminary sometimes to explain what in the world is he talking about? And so Isaiah is one of those prophets. Isaiah is a guy who lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And he made more prophecies about the Messiah than any other prophet. And therefore, naturally, he's quoted more in the New Testament than any other prophet. And he began to tell exactly what would happen when the Messiah would come and what it would look like and what would the sign be and how would we know. And so Isaiah covers everything from the birth of Christ and what we can look for in terms of the virgin birth and what we can begin to recognize when he shows up, all the way into the way in which Christ would live his life and die the death that he would die. What would his nature be? What would his character be? And he talks all about this. So that when Jesus showed up 700 years later, there were many people that missed it. They didn't recognize him, but there were a lot of people who began to read Isaiah again and go, this is him. This is the very one that 700 years ago this prophet Isaiah said would come. And look, it's exactly as he said. So, in Isaiah chapter 7, in the context of warning and judgment, which when you read the prophets, you get a lot of that, he gives us glimmers of hope that there is one coming who will turn the judgment away from God's people and take it upon himself. Listen to what he says. Chapter seven, verse 14 it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's the first word I want you to give you three things I want you to remember tonight. Even for the kids, try to make it as easy as possible for three things. Parents, ask your kids later. What were the three things that Pastor Jeff talked about? The first one is Emmanuel. Remember just that one word, Emmanuel, and what it means, God with us. He said, there's gonna be this, this one who comes, and you'll know it's him because he'll be born of a virgin, which sounds crazy, admittedly, but if God is in it, then nothing is impossible for God, and if he is going to be the God-man, born of woman and born of God, then it only makes sense that this God-man, fully God, fully man, would be born of a woman and of the Holy Spirit, humanly speaking, a virgin. And so he says, that'll be the sign. And when he comes, his name will be Emmanuel. And you go, well, that wasn't his name. His name was Jesus. Well, who is he though? Sometimes in the Old Testament, the names are not necessarily meant. That's what you called them. It was who they were. Well, who was Jesus? Jesus was and is God in the flesh. That's who he is. So we don't call him Emmanuel per se, we call him Jesus, but he is God with us. Now, here's the thing to understand about Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came. They would not have read this, they would not have read Isaiah 7, 14, and most likely they would not have thought that it was good news. They would have read it and gone, I I don't know if I want God with us. Here's why. Almost always in the Old Testament, when God talks about coming to be with his people, it's to judge them. It's to bring his wrath. It's to pour out appropriate justice upon them because his people have always been and continue to be sinners. And God is a God who is holy and he is just. And as a holy and just God, he must remain true to his character and punish, appropriately punish, Punish sin. And if he doesn't do that, if he's not a God of justice, then he ceases to be God because he's acting out of accordance with his character, which means he's no longer perfect, which means he's no longer God. So most of the time in the Old Testament, when God says, I'm going to come among you, I'm going to be with you, it's in the context of I'm bringing judgment on sin. So they would have read these words and most likely would have gone, oh, this is a terrifying thing. God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament in one place and it was the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it was this secluded room in the very heart of the temple where no one could go if you went there, if you went through those curtains into the place of the Ark of the Covenant, you died immediately because a holy God cannot be associated with a sinful person. So to be in the presence of God was a terrifying thing if you were an Israelite if you were a follower of God in the Old Testament. But there's hope in this verse that probably confused the original readers. There's something about this verse that says, "No, no, 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 this one's different. When this one comes, born of a virgin, he's not coming to judge. He's coming to be judged. Which is odd. Because the only one who ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve the wrath of God, who didn't deserve the judgment of sin is the very one who came to take it so that every other human who's walked the face of the earth would have the opportunity to not receive judgment, but mercy. Isaiah seven fourteen. we found once Christ came, we began to understand this is the greatest news ever that God would come and dwell among us. And that he would take upon himself in every way, our life, our judgment, and he would defeat for us what we are incapable of defeating, which is sin and death. The second thing I want you to remember is this. I want you to remember the phrase, light of the world, you skip over two chapters to Isaiah nine and you begin to get some more, more of a picture of this Messiah when he would show up. In, in verse two of chapter nine, it says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shined. Now, a lot of times the prophets would speak uh, in present language they would, as though it were happening in the moment, but they're actually speaking about a future reality to say, All of us, what he's saying here is that every single one of us, the people of the earth have walked in darkness and we've walked in darkness from the very beginning ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. But there's one coming. A light has dawned in the darkness. Those who've walked in the darkness have seen this great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Jesus is the light of the world. He said as much, in John chapter eight, once he had become an adult he had started his ministry, he he just straight up said, at one point in his ministry, he stood up and he said, I am the light of the world, in me there is no darkness at all. Now, we hear that today, 21st century Americans, and we go, cool, I like that analogy, that works. That's good, light good, darkness bad, he's light, drives out darkness, got it, sounds good to me. But if you were a first century Jewish person hearing Jesus say that and where he said it, it would have been profoundly unnerving because here's where Jesus said that. Let me give you the context real quick. In John chapter eight, when he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world in me, there is no darkness at all. It's in the context of the last night of an annual festival for the Jews called the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. Every year they'd get together and they, for a week, would celebrate two things. They would celebrate, on one hand, they would celebrate water. And and what they're specifically celebrating is they're looking back to the Exodus of when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them into the wilderness, they celebrate the water that God provided on a few different occasions. And so they, I mean, they really get, would get into this. They would have this whole procession led by the high priest where he'd take out these massive water jugs that he would care on, carry on both shoulders and he'd go out to the uh, pool of Siloam right outside the city gates and they would dance and they would sing and they would uh, do all kinds of different types of prayers and, and psalms and then they would dip these into the waters of Siloam and then they would rejoice back to the temple celebrating the water that God provided. Now that was the first part of the week. The second part of the week they would begin and celebrating the second thing, and that was light. And they were looking back again to the Exodus and all the ways in which God provided for them in the darkness, that he would lead them, if you're familiar with the story, he led them through the wilderness at night by being a pillar of fire for them to drown out the darkness. In other words, to say this, if you, know, if you want to know the way to go in the wilderness, then follow the light that I'm providing. Well, here's what they would do. The first century Jews on the second part of that festival is they would light up the whole city of Jerusalem and pilgrims would come from all over and everyone would bring candle abras with them and they would put them up all throughout the city and the temple would be the high point, Mount Zion right there. And the temple would be illuminated where you could see it for miles around and it would grow in how illuminated the city would be each night to where on the final night of the festival, it would be the brightest of all nights. And it was on that night the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, that Jesus stood up, and he basically said, "This you want to celebrate? Light? That's me. I'm here. I'm the light of the world. The, the pillar of fire that led you through the wilderness, led your fathers to the wilderness. Yeah, that was me. And that was even a bigger metaphor to say that if you want to be led through the wilderness of life and the darkness of all that sin has brought, and you want to know the way to go, I am the way." I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world, and in me there is no darkness at all. How many times have you been in a well-lit room, and the room next to you is dark, and you open those doors, and the darkness floods the lighted room? How many times have you seen that? If you're raising your hand, please put it down. That does not happen. It cannot happen, that's not how light works. Light by nature always, never once since the creation of the world, since the very moment that God himself said, let there be light, darkness flees. Darkness is simply the absence of light. So we as people who have been uh, inundated with darkness through the sin in our hearts, encounter the light of Jesus and he illuminates He illuminates first who we are. He shows us who we are. We are a people that because of our sin, we've wallowed in the mud of the darkness our whole lives, but we don't know how nasty we are. And then we meet Jesus. And Jesus, as the light of the world, illuminates us and we're able to see for the first time, wow, I am absolutely filthy. Now, if that's all he illuminated, he would just be cruel because then we would just go, wow, this is terrible. I have no hope of ever being clean. But praise be to God, he doesn't just illuminate who we are. Much more importantly, he illuminates who God is. And through Jesus, for the very first time, not only do we see ourselves, but we see God. That's the third thing I want you to remember. First, Emmanuel, second, Light of the world. Third, everlasting Father. Did you catch it? I haven't read it yet, so you didn't catch it. All right, listen. I've done, what, four services? I I can't remember what I've read and what I haven't read. All right. (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 6, listen to this. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, there it is, Prince of Peace. Now, those names that he says that will be true of the Messiah, three of those, at least for me, they they go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Wonderful Counselor, love it. Yes, Prince of Peace, sign me up. Mighty God, yes. I would not wanna follow a God that's not mighty. Everlasting Father, okay, hold on. I, I thought... I thought the Messiah was the Son of God. But now he's saying that he's also Everlasting Father. Now, if you've been around Christianity, you've heard about this Trinity thing, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Is Isaiah getting that mixed up? No, 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 Here's here's what Isaiah's saying. He's simply saying this. He's saying that it's only through this Son that we'll be born, this Son who will be given. It's only through him that we see the Father. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus, the Son of God, is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. So in other words, you wanna know what God's like? What is God like as a father? What is God like in his character and his attributes? How does he relate to humans? What is it that, what is, it that is true of this God? You wanna know what that's like? Look to Jesus because whoever has seen him has seen the Father. And so Jesus is, in a sense, our everlasting Father because he is the one who illuminates the Father and he is the only way to the Father. It's only through Jesus that we begin to encounter this Father who draws us near, who loves us with a love that we've always imagined but never thought was real, who gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding, who, who draws in the weak and the weary among us and says, out of Isaiah chapter 42, when he's talking about this Jesus, he says, a smoldering wick he will never put out and a bruised reed he will never break. In other words, the weakest among us, Jesus as the one who shows us the everlasting father says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, how gross you are, how filthy you are, how sinful you are. It does not matter. The everlasting father displayed through the glorious son is one who says, come unto me and I will love you with a love that will absolutely overwhelm you. This father is unthinkable. He's unimaginable. He's the one that through the expression of the love of the Son, through the cross, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, screams to us a welcome party that we think is too good to be true. And he draws us in, every single last one of us. And he says, I came to rescue the sick, the sinners and I came to make you sons and daughters, and I came to invite you to come and to sit with me, to crawl up in my lap, as it were, and cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, to give an intimacy that exists between the one who created and the created that is beyond our wildest imaginations. Here's the key, though. Do we see that? Do we see that that's what God has done? That's what Christmas is. He came to rescue us all. And it's the greatest news and the greatest story ever told. One of the greatest stories ever told outside of the gospel is a Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens wrote it in 1843. It's been told time and time again, and movies have been made about this for I don't know how many years now. So many that I can't keep up with the various versions of A Christmas Carol. But just a few nights ago, I was flipping the, the channels, and I came across one that I had not seen, one of the versions I had not seen. And so I watched the last, probably, hour of it. And as I'm watching it, I, you know, the story is familiar to me, but I'm drawn into it yet again. And as I'm watching it, there's a thought that occurs to me that for whatever reason, and all the times that I've known about this story, It's never occurred to me before, and it was simple yet profound, and here it was. I found myself asking the question, what are these ghosts doing? If you know the story, you know there's a ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. What are they doing? And it occurred to me that what they're doing is really simple, but it makes all the difference in the world. They're giving Ebenezer Scrooge the ability to see. They're simply saying, Ebenezer, this is who you have been, this is who you are, and this is who you will be if something doesn't change. And as the story unfolds, Ebenezer begins to see. He begins to see things about himself that he's never seen before, and it shudders him to the core. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, oh my goodness, so much better than the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future is Jesus himself who does the very same thing, but not for a Christmas story, but for the very essence of my existence to where he gives me sight to see, Jeff, this is who you've been. This is who you are, and this is who you will be. And apart from me, it's not a good story. But if you believe upon me and you allow me to unite myself to you through faith, to reconcile you back to God, whom you were originally created for, then you will begin to see, yes, this is who you were and this is who you are now. But in Jesus, this is who you will be. And it's not just that. He also says, I don't want you to just see who you are. God says, I want you to see who I am. And he says to us time and time again, he says, this is who I've been, this is who I am, and this is who I will always be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Your everlasting Father, do you see me? Do you see yourself rightly? Do you see God rightly? If you see yourself rightly and you see God rightly, the only one who brings those two together in a union that is unthinkable and unimaginable is the person of Jesus Christ. A redeeming and renewing work that changes everything. Father, would you give us eyes to see this Christmas? Would you give us the ability to stand on the edge of the waterfall of your grace, as it were, and to be overwhelmed, to see with fresh eyes the one who came as Emmanuel to illuminate to us our sin and to illuminate to us you, our everlasting Father. So, Lord, as we open this time together, saying that our prayer would be that you would give us the ability to be in awe and wonder, either for the first time or for the first time in a long time. Would you grant that prayer that we would see the beauty of Jesus, the glory of God. We thank you. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen.